This is exactly right. Many of the disruptors, innovators, you know, great creators of all time are are from the dyslexic community. It doesn't mean all, but it certainly means there's surprising numbers that are there. And just realize that you miss as a society if you're focused on the small end and you may discourage, you know, you may, you know, cause depression or anxiety in these individuals if you don't recognize the enormous talent that's there. Welcome to Parent Footprint with Dr. Dan. I'm Dr. Dan. This show is about making the world a more loving, accepting, and compassionate place, one parent, one person, and one child at a time. The key to raising healthy and engaged kids is for parents to seek the same in their own lives while striving to be the best versions of themselves each day. No matter who you are or where you came from, with increased awareness, you can be purposeful, about leaving a healthy footprint for your children, your family, and all those you care about while living your own life to the fullest. Today's show is a show I've been looking forward to for some time. It is The Dyslexic Advantage, revised and updated with my friends and colleagues, Drs. Brock and Fernet Eide. Drs. Brock and Fredette Eide are leading experts in the field of dyslexia and co-founders of the nonprofit Dyslexic Advantage and the social purpose corporation NeuroLearning.com. They have served as consultants to the President's Council on Bioethics and as visiting lecturers at Stanford Graduate School of Education and much, much more. Their first edition of their book, which we'll be talking about today, The Dyslexic Advantage, was an international bestseller And we are talking about their brand new book, revised and updated, soon to be another international bestseller. Brock and Fernet, welcome to the show. Thanks very much, Dan. It's a real pleasure to be with you. And Fernet, welcome back to the show. This is (laughs) we did this about six years ago at at one of the first recordings of this podcast. So um, it feels wonderful, a full circle moment. I, um, you know. So much for us to talk about, and I. The first thing I was I've been thinking about is when you guys set out to write your first, the first dyslexic advantage book. Did you have any idea that you would end up being at the front end, leading a new vision and paradigm of dyslexia? Um, <laughs> Do you want me? I can comment on that too. Yeah. Right, right. Um, <laughs> I mean, I would, say, I would say I knew <laughs> I knew we would be in the front of something, but I wasn't sure if there would be anybody following us. So <laughs> it, it, it was pretty clear we were going in a different direction. Uh, but, uh, you know, we weren't sure what the response was going to be. And uh, we've been very gratified. I think not only that um, uh, parents and families and dyslexic individuals have found the book helpful and, and have really resonated with the message, but um, even more, uh, we've been surprised in a pleasant way by the response of, of uh, some people in the academic community and the professional community that have really uh, taken it to heart. And I think 
particularly among practicing clinical professionals, we've, we've been just thrilled by the, the resonance that the book has had because I think it, it, um, it fits in very well with what most um, good perceptive practitioners had noticed themselves for a long time. It wasn't that we were trying to convince them of something new. It's that we were helping to give them a validation and a way of organizing observations that they've been making themselves for a long time. I mean, a little uh, also different perspective, but really agreeing with the same thing. I felt like if this encourages people to have a voice or even to think about writing a book, if you feel like events happen and you feel like this is so wrong, <laughs> you know, like the and the perception of dyslexic, dyslexia, dyslexic students, dyslexic adults was so incredibly wrong that we would kind of like stomp around the house complaining about things aloud. And I think that was really helpful putting it into a book because there were so many people's stories, there was science that actually backed this up and putting it all together. When, when you feel like the field is just not, not recognizing what you feel, you know, in a million conversations, a million one-to-one interactions then that's a time where you have to do something different, whether it's like in your practice, Dan, or whether it's in, you know, you decide you got to write this book. And so mm-hmm. That, mm-hmm. I, I, you know, totally, um, totally grateful for the response that it's had. And, and, and also I would say too, there are some, some people who are still on the fence about things like this as well. Yes. And more the yes. reason to speak out and just organize your argument and present your case because pretty soon you, you find you're changing the field and, and uh, you know, mm-hmm. you can shut yourself up and just kind of mutter at home or, or you can put it all together. And I think that's one of the exciting things about it is just seeing how changes occurred. Mm-hmm. And you, um, you both have changed the field. And as, as people who are so modest and humble, I, um, I feel, I feel the need to emphasize some of these things um, on your guys' behalf because you know, um, and as you've written about, all of the people who have reached out to you, um, professionals, parents, children, adults, who the, your work has changed their lives. Um, as you know, your work has changed my life personally, my kids' lives, and many, many uh, clients that we serve at the center. As, and it's been just a, a, it's a beacon of how we see you know, neurodiversity at large, and then specifically within the field of dyslexia, how these minds are different. And I want to, I want to, um, I wanted to read a few of the quotes at the beginning of your book, because I just think it, it just, um, it it makes me, it gives me the, uh, the tingling chills as, as I read these (laughs) words, this book isn't about dyslexia. It's about the kinds of individuals who are diagnosed with dyslexia the types of minds they have, the ways they process information, and the things they do especially well. It's not a book about something these individuals have. It's about who they are. And then you go on to write, unlike most books on dyslexia, this book won't focus on making individuals with dyslexia into better readers. Instead, it will focus on helping them to become better at being dyslexic. Now, this is, I mean, we're, we're getting used to hearing these types of words and phrases, but 12 years ago when you wrote your first book, this was a brand new idea, right? This is a totally new idea because, and still like we have to get these people to learn how to read because they have all of these challenges. 
Yeah. So I, I think um, what uh, what for us the mission of the first book was was to really recontextualize the way people thought about dyslexia, um, because you know nobody has ever seen dyslexia just out there on its own. Uh, it doesn't exist as some kind of entity in the real world separate from from people. It's it's a description of certain facts about people. And the facts that people were zeroed in on when they talked about dyslexia, uh, for the most part, 15 years ago, were reading and spelling challenges. Well, for us, it was so obvious. And the reason that uh, Fernet was stamping and muttering around the house <laughs> was that... Um, you too, honey. <laughs> <laughs> but I don't talk about it. But, um, <laughs> Was was that it was so obvious that we were we were talking about just two two facets of a much bigger picture, and they were uh, you know it's as if you were were talking about you know the little smudges of dirt on a window and ignoring the window, and it was so apparent to us that there were was a whole suite of cognitive differences that were associated with these reading and spelling challenges. And that the key was to look at the whole picture and not just to isolate the uh, the challenge side of it, because we were missing really important aspects. And I think the most important aspect was that this was a this was something that impacted learning in all of its aspects, and not just the learning of literacy skills, but the way uh, children and adults learned learned everything and by focusing in on reading and ignoring the impacts in all of these other areas, we were, we were both causing problems and missing tremendous opportunities. And mm-hmm. by reframing things, we hope to, to be able to set that in better context. And I, I do think that we've seen a, a big change over the last decade in the way people have thought about the connection between being dyslexic and having cognitive strengths. But I think we're still at the very beginning of getting people to reconceptualize the implications of that difference for mm-hmm. for education throughout the educational uh, curriculum, and not just in the area of reading, and not just in the other area of literacy uh, in in general, but but learning of all sorts of things. And I think that's one of the things that we get into a little more in the new edition of the book. Definitely, you do. Um, I'm thinking we should set the stage here with some, some simple definitions, you know, for, for our listeners who, you know, most people have heard of dyslexia, um, unless you have it or you have a close family member, um, or someone close to you who has it, you don't really understand what it looks like or feels like. And most people really think of, well, yeah, they, that you can't read or you flip your numbers or you flip your letters. These are the common, um, ideas, poor spelling, as you mentioned, tell us, Contrast the more traditional definition, just so people can hear that traditional definition of dyslexia, which is still very much out there <laughs> in, in major orga- dyslexic organizations, um, and also how you define dyslexia. Okay. I think the, uh, the real core features of the definition of dyslexia, um, and this is going to be slightly differently phrased than the than the, uh, uh, for example, the IDA definition, but um, it's really difficulty in reading that's caused by difficulties 
at the word and subword level. Uh, so difficulties uh, manipulating the sound components that make up words in ways that allow you to see their resemblances to to the letters that are used to represent words and the and the rules that underlie those representations. Um, they can be factors that impact the aspects of the visual processing and sequencing of that or the retrieval of information uh, from, from that. But it's really, it's really difficulties that take place at that word and subword level that then lead to the, to the higher reading difficulties. So prob problems that impact primarily uh, difficulties with reading comprehension but don't impact decoding and spelling are, are not dyslexia. They're disorders of reading comprehension. And, and um, then on the other side, difficulties that go sort of far beyond the word and subword level and impact uh, really basic aspects of language learning and language comprehension are sort of dyslexia plus. They're, they're mm -hmm. developmental language conditions that involve uh, a little more extensive aspects of learning syntax and grammar and and uh, and things like that. So dyslexia is that space right in the middle. That's and, that's the, yeah. that's the, the the disability definition. So exactly. It, exactly. This is the one that's handy for talking to schools and administrators. It's what people want to know about when they're thinking about accommodations and things like that. So that's the narrow definition. But what about the broader one and just in terms yeah. of cognition? Do you want the, the a broader? Yeah, approach? let's keep going. We're we're setting the, we're setting the table here. Yes. So the way the way we really see dyslexia is that that dyslexia as as a broader description really encompasses a different pattern of brain organization that uh, results from a different different pattern of connections among neurons in the brain that leads to a greater specialization in sort of big picture connections rather than fine details. And that results in some developmental changes in the way that the brain processes information so that the brains of people with dyslexia tend, for example, to engage more, uh, more right hemispheric and bi-hemispheric networks rather than specializing in more efficient and fast left hemispheric functions. Um, they tend, rather than to develop automaticity for a lot of skills, to require continuous conscious performance of those activities. So having to think your way through them and use working memory to, to go through them. Uh, and then they involve retaining more memories as memories of individual events and individual happenings or examples rather than combining those into generalized, uh, more abstract definitional forms of memory. And because of those differences in brain development, it leads to a tendency to use uh, systems for solving problems that are more connected with what we usually think of as, as higher creativity systems. So things that people tend to reserve for situations that are very difficult, that are very novel, or that are, are very confusing, that are packed in a lot of circumstances that need sorting out. So most people resort to using those systems only for very complex problems, but dyslexic people tend to use them all the time. 
And there's some evidence that it's this this fact that dyslexic people use them all the time, that, that while it makes them less efficient for really easy, quick, automatic, repetitive things where using automatic systems can be the preferred method for most people, it leads them to develop greater skill at using those complex problem-solving uh, ta- uh, methods and tasks because they're doing it all the time. And so when something really, really difficult comes along, they're now in an especially good condition to tackle that because they've been, they've been using this routinely all the time. What? So yeah. another way of this is actually helpful following Brock, you know, because he always triggers all these ideas in my head. Initially, I come up with zero. But but another way of thinking about this is if you have sort of generic dyslexic and non-dyslexic child in a classroom and a question goes out, the non-dyslexic child's hand goes out first and answers exactly the answer to the question that was posed and then the dyslexic child may take longer mm-hmm. and may, mm-hmm. may actually have a more interesting, less predictable answer. That might be because of associations. It mm-hmm. might be because of analogies or things that or or might be because that student is asking why the teacher would ask the question in this particular way. Do you know what I mean? So there is this this mm-hmm. is. Uh, it doesn't have the automaticity and certainly the speed with a rapid fire question answer, especially if it's that kind of semantic knowledge. I have one answer and I'm looking for it in three seconds or less. The The interesting thing about the dyslexic mind is that <clears throat> it will inter- have this interconnected processing of the question as well as the answer. And that's why when you have a really difficult question, you might really get a, a more interesting answer for many of these dyslexic minds, it's because it's just it's not the hard wire that's emphasized, but it's actually a bigger picture um, and even more divergent uh, perspective that mm-hmm. the dyslexic thinker might bring to the question. Yes, you and you both just summarized succinctly so many aspects of the book that I want to and your you know the model that I want to that I want to pull apart here and. Going back to the traditional versus the broader uh, and newer paradigm of dyslexia, I I really um, I really resonate with the analogy you make, the telescope analogy. Whereas if we just focus in on these aspects of dyslexia, particularly what is mainstream of the um, the challenges of the reading, the writing, the slow processing, um, the learning disorder. Uh, part of it, we miss the it, the whole broader space, all the space that's out there, and that's what um, that's what your work and that's what this uh, your first book and this newer book even pulls back even more with more and more research that has come out in the last decade plus to show what you're talking about is this ability to make these connections, and and I w- and I was going to add if given the time. So dyslexics make these connections, um, but often three hours later, two weeks later, or in a classroom, maybe five minutes later. And, and this, this, this issue of slower, um, non-conscious, um, or excuse me, non-automatic processing is such 
a significant factor for us to consider when we're talking about a child in a classroom, a young adult in a um, college or graduate school classroom, and an adult in the workplace. Um, and say a little bit about this, uh, this, this time factor, which becomes such a liability in certain situations for the dyslexic mind and what we can do to allow the time for that dyslexic mind to fully engage. Yeah. yeah, well, th this is a huge issue. In fact, the three-second issue, I think I think um, when they were timing uh, many teachers in the classroom, they would, they would expect a response within about a second. And then if they told the teachers, you know, give the student a little longer to answer, they would give them three seconds. And if you're <laughs> beyond three seconds, a lot of times the teacher teacher would move on. And so you can imagine there's a number of things that happen, you know, on both sides. Number one, the teacher concludes this is a student who doesn't answer, who has nothing to say. The student himself or herself is thinking, why didn't I answer quicker? Maybe, I, maybe I'm slower than the other students. I mean, slower in a, in a broader sense. There's some negative consequences that come on that. And it's just attacking the confidence of the student when there's no other way to get that knowledge. When, when a teacher is, is aware of the fact that there's a sound bite and that isn't the best, deepest answer to get out of their students, you can kind of prime them. You have to give them, number one, you have to give them enough good questions that there's meat to it. And I think a lot of people under underestimate um, even young students. And, and a lot of times if you pose, you know, interesting questions, deep questions and give them time and say, well, we'll go around. Or, or have people hold up their hands at the right time when they have something to say, that can be really valuable. But I think um, your system, sometimes you can go through K through 12 education, always feeling like, gee, I, I just can't answer in class. I don't know why, you know, and, and if, if writing is difficult and writing doesn't reflect the depth of your ideas and there's no other way to show it, then that student is, is kind of marked off as, as a, you know, an underperforming, underachieving, they feel that they're mm -hmm. stupid, all these negative consequences. And there's no reason that has to be, you know, I think mm -hmm. the sense of time happens in school and it happens in hiring situations. It's a very common situation where you have to take time tests and that, that, you know, is your gatekeeper for some very selective jobs. And that's what may drive a lot of dyslexic, very successful professionals into entrepreneurship because they know that if they have their own business, they can actually prove themselves. And we know some people who have gotten into corporations that way because they learned of what they could do through their businesses as contractors and things like that. But they could not have been let in through traditional hiring practices. So that mm -hmm. time element is very misunderstood and it does select against um dyslexic as well as other neurodiverse applicants. Mm -hmm. I, I want, we're going to be talking about the mind strengths, which has been revolutionary um, in my work and for so many others. But before that, you triggered some, a memory in me when you were talking about, um, I'm going to use the word, the shrapnel, the low self-esteem, the, the impact um, that so many dyslexic individuals have in school. And I just flashed back to um, the first Dyslexic Advantage Conference a few years back. Um, that was such a powerful experience for, for me at so many levels. And on the one hand, I, I 
truly felt understood and that I was with other people with similar brains, even though I couldn't put, I couldn't really describe it until the conference um, moved on and I had words to describe these different um, pro processes and procedures, but, or not but, and what really struck with me is there were Pulitzer Prize individuals, astrophysicists, Academy Award winners, venture capitalists, um, people with um, amazing entrepreneurs, people with, um, you know, their own jets, they're, you know, very successful. And in sitting in on these little roundtable discussions um, and the larger ones, hearing across them the shame, the hiding, the embarrassment, and the word I, the shrapnel is what I came out really feeling like, the scar tissue from a lifetime of feeling less than, feeling dumb, called out in multiple academic uh, educational situations, it, regardless of the success, it, it stays with you. And that's why we have to start early to reduce th that impact. Yeah, absolutely agree. Yeah. And I think, you know, one of the fundamental challenges is just the lack of understanding of the fact that intelligence can look like very different things in, in different children and giving you know, equipping teachers with an understanding of the fact that, that kids learn to solve problems, they learn to learn about the world, they learn to create and do things in very different ways. And the process can look very different. And also the timeline can be very different. I mean, you know, some of those brilliant astrophysicists and, and things like that, you know, if, if you tested them in third grade, if they you know, come into the, the summit center and had their full battery. Um, you know, the results in some ways might not have been impressive um, mm -hmm. because the the processing speed was really low. The you know and and um, you know retrieval speed could have been low for some of them, and the the ability to achieve at that at that age is just really low because this the. The connections are spreading out to eventually, you know, it's like it's like uh, one of these big um, public works um, things, you know, like when they were doing the underground trains in Los Angeles and things like that, where you disrupt traffic and there's just not much happening up on the surface. But eventually, when it's all done, then you have this system for bypassing all of that and getting from point A to point B much faster than you ever could on the surface. And it's just there the whole developmental aspect of dyslexia and the fact that kids are just going in a different direction from, from other kids and the way that they're putting things together really needs to be understood. It's just, there's such a tendency to want to, you know, put lines on the paper and make a growth chart and say, we're here in first grade, we're here in second grade, we're here in third grade. Now we'll take the ruler and figure out where we're going to be at age 45. And it just does not work like that. And, um, yeah. you know, getting, getting beyond that, um, is, is really, really important. Um, yeah, a lot of times there's like a glimmer and you think, wow, what a great insight from a young child. And then you feel like other times they disappear in the background and, and, mm -hmm. and then it's hard to kind of like find out what's going on. I know they know a lot, but they don't, may not talk a lot. They may not be able to write fluently, all these kinds of things. So it's this, um, it's this prolonged, you know, 
you know, it's a little bit of the ugly duckling. You're going to be a swan, <laughs> but it just, mm-hmm. it takes a long time. Yeah. Or like the old great grandmother mm-hmm. saying, you know, that that's still waters run deep. I mean, this is really mm-hmm. the situation for many a dyslexic child. It's just, you know, that, that uh, there's something absolutely beautiful going on and yet you mm-hmm. cannot always have that come out on demand. And, um, and, and these are sensitive souls. I think there's this, really interesting research literature about how dyslexic young people may have stronger emotional sensitivities and, mm-hmm. you know, being aware of that and making sure that you're, you're creating that positive environment is really important for these students. Mm-hmm. I love the, um, the ugly duckling to swan because at the end of the book one of the components you talk about is the critical aspect of family uh support and thinking of the mother of that ugly duckling like loving loving the ugly duckling right Uh, the people so and again this might not be the best analogy but we all know what we're talking about here um is that the idea of Getting this information about dyslexia, if you or and or your children are dyslexic and if your children are dyslexic, there's a very good chance that um, some of the uh, genetic, uh, the genetic makeup, it comes from uh, parents and, and beyond and uncles, cousins, it's in the family. And to have that positive family identity and to have this language, which we are still going to uh, call out here in terms of what these strengths are and understanding this profile and helping a child understand their full profile beyond their reading and spelling and the red marks on the paper, um, that there's so much more than that. And providing this understanding and providing these opportunities for growth where the areas of strength lie to have these competing experiences to the negative ones, which unfortunately, inevitably are going to happen in school, Um, hopefully less, but it's going to happen. And so it's just so important that we get this knowledge out to people about what this dyslexic mind is made of and what it does particularly well. So there we go. We're serving it up for the mind strengths. And <laughs> this is, I tell, as I tell all my clients, I said, I'm so grateful to Brock and Fernet because they came up with an acronym. So people like me will always remember what it actually is, which is one of these <laughs> key dyslexic uh, shortcuts here. Okay, so the mind strengths. I'm just going to say it, and then you guys do a deep dive for us. So we have material reasoning. We have interconnected reasoning. We have narrative reasoning. And we have dynamic reasoning. Take us on, take us on a journey here. Okay, uh, very, very briefly. So material reasoning is, is the name uh, had to be stretched a little bit to get there, but it's basically three-dimensional spatial reasoning. But reasoning about things that exist in the material universe. So extension and length and and distance and those kinds of things. So being able to mentally simulate three-dimensional space and then use that mental simulation to reason about movements and about uh, spatial forms and and, uh, confirmations. So that's that's M strength. I strength is interconnected reasoning. And that's really the ability to make connections between things, to see relationships, including understanding how systems work and, and operate together. So the ability to look into an environment and, and spot how things fit together and work together. Uh, and also the ability 
to engage in things like divergent creativity, to start with one thing and then think of something that's uh, related to it in a very distant way that other people might not really, uh, really understand. Um, the third narrative reasoning um, is really reasoning using the, the part of, of your conscious memory or declarative memory that's, that's called episodic memory or personal memory. So memory of personal experiences or memory of things that can be cast in mind as experiences, as, as things that you've lived. And uh, the ability to use those uh, examples and cases and things that you've drawn from experience or you've drawn from hearing stories or you've drawn from, from uh, watching movies or, or uh, reading books uh, and using, using those kinds of things to say, uh, to reason about things, you know, in your, in your present life. So, you know, if you're thinking about justice instead of coming up, up with some sort of uh, abstract definition, like giving each person uh, his or her, her due, um, you you think about just acts, or you think about just people, or you think about uh, just societies, and uh, you're you're really thinking in terms of examples of how principles are lived out, uh, and so that's that's narrative reasoning, and then dynamic reasoning is very similar to narrative reasoning, but it involves uh, elements also of of the interconnected reasoning. So you're you're thinking through processes across time to see how they'll work out. So for example, if you're involved in the financial markets and you want to uh, think about, you know, are we going to have a recession later this year or not? Um, what uh, will be the response of the financial markets to that? You're you're taking current conditions. You're using experience uh, of the past and how things have worked in the past. And then you're, you're making simulations in your mind about how those kinds of uh, processes will play out over time, given the starting conditions. So it's a really complex mental simulation to take current conditions and reason forward into the future or to reason backwards into the past. So, uh, you know, great paleontologists like Jack Horner use this kind of dynamic reasoning to imagine what motherhood was like for an iguanodon in the you know plains of Minnesota uh, of, of Montana where he grew up. Um, so that's dynamic reasoning. It's that ability to sort of move through time and imagine how processes change in one direction or the other. Um, I think the thing that surprised us about mind strengths this time around is that the research over the last ten years has done a lot to connect the mechanisms. Uh, underlying all four of those strengths. So mm -hmm. uh, where we had really started just with clinical observations of dyslexic people and said, you know, we see these clusters of abilities in different people. Uh, we hadn't really uh, imagined that they were so closely connected with the underlying uh, underlying mechanisms. But um, that's really, uh, I think, done a lot to make us uh uh, confirmed in the notion that we were really on to something, that these really mm -hmm. are a real pattern of connected abilities uh, that we see. Not everybody, not every individual will will express their strength through all of these different mind strengths because the nervous system is a, is a modular affair where you're plugging in one ability with another ability, like those little electronics kits that uh, mm -hmm. you know, you play with with kids where you're putting a power source with 
a different kind of transistor or with a different kind of motor and you're getting a different function. So you may get spatial reasoning, you may get predictive ability, you may get uh, ability to see how systems work together. But in all of these, you're, you're using these kinds of mental simulations that are, that are uh, supported by the common mechanisms and you're running the fruits of your past experience and learning from experience through those. And you're taking advantage of these separate memories of experiences that we talked about earlier that dyslexic people seem to be so good at retaining. And you're using those to, uh, to create with it. And as you, uh, you write several times in the book, it, you don't need to be dyslexic to have any of these strengths. However, the research, particularly in the last decade, shows that if you are dyslexic, you have a significantly higher um, chance or um, expression of these abilities, and they do hold up over time in these different studies. That's right. You know, and it's, I, I think it's so fascinating, too, because because there's so much embedded in these strengths that can be utilized in education and in careers. And it's something that, that, you know, really hadn't been on the roadmap, but they really should be. And I think there are a lot of people where they, they recognized it and then they knew maybe how, how to capitalize it. Otherwise, if you look at the literature in general on, on dyslexia and, you know, remediation as what they're focusing on, I mean, there are all these kind of quirky things where people would say, oh, you know how I, I ended up doing a workaround. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I have to I have to doodle my notes after I have to translate, you know, what I hear into images. I mean, that has nothing to do with phonology. Right. But, mm -hmm. but there was just a lack of curiosity on the scientific side. And what I would say is that with this book, the nice thing is, is pulling things together. Um, that support the mind strengths with dyslexic thinkers. But there were uh, many clues for the for neuroscience people reading the papers, because although the science papers would focus on some, you know, and say something, frankly, a little bit negative, you know, like this is a deficit or something like that, you know, I would... I would look at the brain scans. And I'd say, "Oh, how interesting!" It's you know, and they'd be embedded in the text. They'll say, "Oh, it's a little higher in the preconeus or something like that." Right? I would think, "Boy, isn't that interesting?" If it's associated with imagery, and so mm -hmm. all the dyslexic subjects were actually driving that area with the test, but no one was no one was focused on that. They were only focused on interpreting the phonological aspect, and so there were these little little you know little pinpoints of research that over the course of another decade, you had even more that came together. And, and, and rather than something that'd be overlooked or as, as a side consequence or something, then we, we, we could see, and also I think more people began to speak about their ways of doing workarounds or posting up YouTube videos and things like that. And this story is coming together through you know thousands of voices, which is really exciting. I mean, it still mm -hmm. needs to break through to things like curriculum and and research and things like that. But it's it's the minute you kind of let it out of the box, it's taking a life of its own, and that I think is a really exciting thing. Yes, and uh, these examples that you get have given in both books um, and in your talks, just for everyone, things that stuck with me um, for material reasoning. I believe there's about seven modern man-made wonders and all seven or, or so have been um, 
designed by a dyslexic architect. Was it there some some quote like that you used to quote, Brock? What I remember hearing this years ago in San Francisco. It's a high coincidence of of uh, of this architectural wonders and dyslexic architects. It's, it's supposed to be a dyslexic guy. <laughs> I know that. Yeah, well, certainly Sydney Opera House, which we talk about yeah, in this book. Yeah. Uh, yes. uh, and I don't even know that I could tell you what the seven uh, modern wonders are. That's what are. I always <laughs> tell people. I tell everyone, I just know the fact. I can't tell you what they are. Anyways, there's a high incidence, just like all everything we're talking about. Surprise me. Of this correlation. And then we have the interconnected reasoning, which we often see with Nobel Prize scientists um, who are taking diverse and vast um, fields and putting them together to make a novel, find a novel solution. We have all of these amazing authors. There's so many, as you write, so many dyslexic authors. And I think a a funny, um, a funny um, just tidbit about Roald Dahl and people talking about how he how they love the way he does it, used to do his prose when he wrote and he said, well, that's just me. I'm dyslexic. Like it's kind of just came out that way. Um, and then there's dynamic reasoning, which we think of as the more of the entrepreneurial um, trait and that ability to predict and the research that you cite of, you know, up to three times um, more likely of uh, dis- entre- dyslexic. Entrepreneurs are like three times more likely to be dyslexic than non-dyslexic. Um, did I get that right? Did I get that number right? I think three um, and one. So three times as many, um, the, the, the incidence of dyslexia is three times as high among entrepreneurs as it is among the general population. Thank you. I said that backwards. See, there is something to the backwardsness of dyslexia. Um, so, so you can all, visualize it in, in the correct uh, in the correct visualize the <laughs> whole thing. It there, yeah. 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 Yes, and um, so there, we have these examples in real life all the time, and then it's this workaround. And I, I forget the workaround. I, let's talk about the workarounds and the trade-offs because you write a lot about the trade-offs, and it, it's a dyslexic mind. Generally, as Jack Horner says, you know why dyslexics um, are um, don't think or think outside the box uh, because we were never in the box in the first place. And I, I just so resonated with that. It's like everything in school. I remember trying to come up with a different way that was being taught to be able to produce and eventually understand what I was supposed to be learning and producing. And then lo and behold, that tends to be the common dyslexic experience for many is how do I rewire this thing so I can figure it out? Ideally, we're being taught in a way that our brains are, right, this is your vision for the future of learning. Like we teach it a way that the dyslexic brain doesn't have to take extra steps because it's a natural flow with the strengths. But in real life, we find that there are all these workarounds and these trade-offs that happen. Yeah, I think you know when what you're what you're sort of describing here is really you know goes back to what we said uh, kind of in the early part of the show about the difference between being able to to automate things and learn things by rote versus the ability to learn things consciously, um, you know, using declarative memories. The declarative just means that you can say it to yourself. You're aware that you know it. So knowledge that you can put into words. And um, because, because dyslexic folks tend to have difficulty learning things by rote, 
learning things that are not connected with a bigger system, just filing facts into little cubby holes in the mind that you can then go and pull out on command easily and quickly and find them and, uh, and, and produce them. The whole system of learning that is dependent upon this notion, we're going to learn the, these little basic building blocks that at present, they won't mean anything to you at all. But once you've, once you've sort of mastered them and automated, then we'll tell you what they mean and we'll build on that. That just does not work for dyslexic folks. So you're spending your whole time in your education sitting there trying to create a kind of framework of knowledge that allows you to declare that knowledge to yourself, to make it understandable. And the, the point that we're trying to make in the book is that as educators, we need to take this cognitive difference into account in designing forms of education that work for people that are built like that. So we, we have to stop taking for granted that the way of doing things is to build up basic skills that are all these automatic rote things and then layering knowledge or, or really information on top of those, which is usually disconnected facts. And then finally, getting students to think about what those facts mean at some later stage of education. That's just not how dyslexic people roll. It just, mm-hmm. It's never going to work. We have to start with an appreciation of phenomena that can be can be taken in as experiences that meaning can be teased out of at that top level. And then we have to work back to the phenomena that underlie them, that make up that visible experience. It's just a very different, a very different approach to things. And instead of getting people just to memorize things, we have to get them to sort of understand principles and then use those to make predictions, you know, in an, in an age where everybody has the world's knowledge in their pocket, it doesn't make sense to, to concern ourselves overly much that kids can't master lists of all the rivers and, you know, in, in <laughs> India. All the presidents, all the presidents and the capitals. Oh, yes. Yeah, yes. you know, it's three clicks yeah. away on your, on your smartphone. Right. But what's not three clicks clicks away on your smartphone is understanding, you know, what what the the principles of, you know, divided government are in the United States Constitution and how having uh, independence between the different branches of government is supposed to protect the liberty of American citizens and things like that. And so we we need to be we need to be spending time on historical events that that help kids un, you know see where things work well where things don't work well get them to to think through and understand what were the what were the forces that were that were moving in different directions during those times and events and how are those how are those relevant for today I mean, these are the kinds of things that dyslexic minds do really well and this sort of notion that everybody has that uh, dyslexic kids, you know, don't enjoy history because when I give them this, you know, date of what happened in 1787, they, they, you know, they're really unhappy with me. Uh, but if you, if you, you know, bring in some red coats and some blue coats and you let, you know, kids mm-hmm. divide up and you say, you know, well, today we're, we're, um, we're going to be at Yorktown 
and uh, you know, let's uh, let's see what happened that day. Yeah, or what, or alternative history. What would have happened if the revolutionaries lost? Yeah, you know, where do you think we would be now? Often that's a great question for dyslexic students. It's really meaty. It makes you question assumptions and things like that. And so that aspect, the the under underestimating the 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 heights that many of these dyslexic thinkers can go is just it's rampant throughout the educational system. And mm-hmm. I think there's this feeling like because some of the smaller parts are weaker, they'll try to simplify and simplify. And then you get, you know, just terrible situations where this very intelligent dyslexic student is being, you know, put back with students of low IQ or something like that. And and it's just it's a tragedy because maybe they need to be in the gifted class with accommodations and technology mm-hmm. and things like that. So mm-hmm. it's this aspect of it requires a, a big kind of reconceptualization adjustment. And it's just like the eyeglass thing. They have to flip the telescope and be able to actually see the breadth of the strengths that are present in these students. And there are distinct, our focus has been on dyslexic students, but to be able to look at this group of students and really see the unique characteristics about it, you know, it's no accident that that many of the disruptors, innovators, you know, great creators of all time are are from the dyslexic community. It doesn't mean all, but it certainly means there's surprising numbers that are there. Yeah. And just yes. realize that you miss as a society if you're focused on the small end and you may discourage, you know, you may, you know, depre- cause depression or anxiety in these individuals if you don't recognize the enormous talent that's there. Yeah. Yes. I think, yes. you know, it's, it's really important for educators to think about sort of, you know, what is it that we're, what is it that we're moving towards? And I, you know, if anything comes out of this new edition, I hope it's that it helps people to understand that what we're really trying to help dyslexic people build in their education is a great simulation machine. And what does that simulation machine run on? It runs on experience. It runs on a stock of stories and examples and narratives from the past. And it makes connections between things in, in imaginative and creative ways. And that's how it does its job. It doesn't do its job by pulling out rule books and, you know, figuring out what step leads to what step leads to what step. It, it works by simulation. And we have to, we have to design the, the manufacturing steps in the educational process according to what the product is that we're, that we're trying to create. And, um, you know, understanding, understanding what dyslexic minds are, are trying to do is just really critical. Um, mm-hmm. You know, you're, you're probably familiar with, uh, with the work that, um, that Helen Taylor's been doing over in the United Kingdom. Uh, yep. with this and read about it in your book. Yes. Yeah, she, she's done a wonderful, wonderful job of looking at, at our work and the work of, um, of people like uh, Rod Nicholson and Angela Fawcett and other people who've been looking at, at dyslexic cognition and dyslexic attention and executive functioning. And her, her realization was that all of the things 
that dyslexic people do well and all of the areas where they, they operate a little more loosely in some regards than the non-dyslexic population, optimize them for what she calls exploratory search. So mm-hmm. dyslexic minds in, in Helen's view are oriented towards looking for new opportunities, new information, and, and uh, uh, new resources as opposed to trying to be more efficient in using previously learned things and, 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 and developing uh, more and more refined, detailed systems for, for doing things over and over again. And I think that there's just there's so much truth to that, and there's so mm-hmm. much um, illumination that comes from thinking through that perspective that can be really, really helpful in uh, creating workplaces where you take people that are exploratory like this versus people that are more detail-oriented exploiters of existing resources and how they work together. And Mm -hmm. also thinking uh, of education as a process of uh, of learning through exploration. And Mm -hmm. uh, it, it just, it clarifies so much that I think, you know, uh, we tend to get so lost in the weeds sometime in thinking about, uh, about the educational system. Um, and, uh, you know, it, it, it really sometimes is less complicated than, than we make it. Mm-hmm. Well, and just the idea of learning through exploration, which I do think there was more time for, three, two, three, four decades ago before different policies for lots of different reasons came in. Um, you know, it almost feels like it's a, that's a luxury when really it's, it should be the ideal, you know, and as you write about um, dyslexics learn through, as you mentioned, experience, they learn through context, they learn through meaning, and they, they learn through the simulations, the doing, the exploring. And it is a paradigm shift in education that there's bubbling and there there's schools that do it. And it's just the system, which we're not going to tackle today. Um, it's just not set up for that brain by design to where it's come today. And, uh, we all, um, have work to do. Um, and, um, are grateful for all the teachers who are out there in the trenches um, yeah. educating all of these people. And the more we learn about neuroscience and the more we learn about um, neurodiversity and the more we learn about dyslexia, um, which we didn't even say the number. Sorry, I, we're winding down. But the number, the, what's the latest research on the percentage of dyslexic students in a classroom is what? Uh, you know, the most recent uh, cited ones are around 20%. Uh, yeah. You know, again, we're, we're, yeah, we're working on a on a continuum here where it's not, you know, we're not talking about a discrete cutoff point. It's not, uh, you know, two spikes in the population where we have the dyslexic people and the non-dyslexic people. We have people with a blend of traits that lead to dyslexic cognition that that blends in with the population. So, you know, we're really we're really looking probably at about a third of the population that that learns better in the ways that dyslexic people learn. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, uh, it, it really is, um, it really is a large group of people that could be more engaged with school and could be better served by the educational process if they had a, a 
opportunity to learn in ways that were better suited with their their way of mm-hmm. processing information. And, and I will say, because uh, we teach a, a dyslexia for teachers course, that I've seen the you know really a, a wide continuum. I, I see some very uh, astute, attentive teachers who recognize, even if they haven't been formally identified, the nature of of the difficulties that their students are having and the, and the intelligence and the, you know, like I said, sometimes it's processing speed issues that there's more there than can easily come out in a a very quick back and forth question answer session, Mm -hmm. as well as, you know, teachers who've said, Oh, I've been teaching for 15 years and I've never had a dyslexic student in my class in the first week. And then suddenly in the fourth, we go, wait a second. Yeah, <laughs> and it's right. that the students were never identified, you know, and, and, right. and you know, as you probably know, California, they recently, you know, put down a, a measure to try to do more dyslexia, dyslexia screening in schools. So it's, right. it can be that many teachers are operating in the dark, um, mm-hmm. but um, you know, it's, it's, it's definitely a blessing whenever you have a teacher who is trying to look for the strengths in their students, because, mm-hmm. because they'll be able to find them. And there have been many, um, there have been many who really try to problem solve and figure out, I, I, here's this last example. I mean, there was a student who drew all the time and they knew that he wanted to, he just wanted to be a little artist, but he was failing AP art because he could <laughs> not get all the dates and all the periods and everything like that. And, and do this timeline. He could not get the timeline to save his life. Mm-hmm. And she thought on her own, she was, she was trying to read her book and she was trying to problem solve a way to, to tap into what his strengths were. And she was amazed. She found out she could give him examples of art objects that he'd never seen before. And he could, he could assign them to the, to the period and the style, but he didn't know the year, the years mm-hmm. that they were. And he had this kind of approximate knowledge, but the, the fact that he recognized, which hadn't been taught explicitly, aspects of the art form, whether it was the shape or the, the subject matter, she just found astounding. And so there you have it. I mean, it's really yeah. looking, looking for the difference and, and valuing it if you find it. So I have to ask one more question before the parent footprint moment question, because it's sort of the it can be the elephant at times that you guys get, which is all this talk about the dyslexic mind. What about the intervention? What about reading intervention, right? Like the, the mainstream is, is a lot of time, understandably is spent on reading intervention. Um, you touch on it, but you very are very mindful about how you think about this brain and the way to, maximally develop this dyslexic brain. So tell us how, what are, what's the recipe of intervention, accommodation, strength develop, strength-based development based on the dyslexic brain makeup? How, how should we view it from your perspective? Um, you know, I think first of all, we, we want to be very upfront that we are strong supporters of early identification and intervention because the, the time that's most possible to make good gains in terms of, of reading basics is early on. It's, you know, if we can identify kids, um, you know, in kindergarten or pre-kindergarten, give them good basic grounding and phonemic awareness and phonological development and some visual skills, then there are going to be fewer kids that are really struggling later on. And that's, that's all a good thing. 
But that's one small part of things. And in the in the real world, um, you know, I think what we've seen over the last few years is that there's a tremendous inventiveness on the part of the big, you know, educational machine. And again, this is not to to knock teachers in the classrooms because I don't think this is where the decision is being is being made. But um, you know, we've seen with 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 our dyslexia screener and other dyslexia screeners that are out there that there's a real strong effort not to want to get too much information uh, about about kids' actual learning style in the classroom because then it carries a mandate for for intervention. And so there are ways to to basically keep things back at the same level of uh, doing very basic sort of achievement type uh, testing for kids that that really is agnostic about what the sources of the reading challenges are. So for the foreseeable future, I think parents are going to be responsible for their kids' reading development if, if their child is, is dyslexic. And I, I wish it, I could say otherwise, but I'm, I'm afraid that that's so. But it's also really important to, to recognize that there is a group of kids that even with early identification, with excellent intervention are not going to make sufficient progress by the end of third grade to be ready for that fire hose of printed information that comes at them in fourth grade. And those kids need to be provided with access to the information that's usually accessible through print to other students in the form of text-to-speech technologies of various kinds or of uh, recorded books or of other forms of information. So it's really critical to have access to technology uh, early on. If you're not able to read up to the level of your conceptual ability, you need to have that information provided to you in some other format. And there's a, a, an almost punitive type system in place now that prevents a lot of kids from getting access to that. And then, you know, the third piece is having sufficient time to develop uh, mentally, to develop personally by exercising strengths. And uh, that, that can be strengths that fit in in some way with the educational curriculum or strengths that are, that are really outside the educational curriculum, strengths in music or strengths in art, strengths in sports, uh, whatever it is. Uh, it's really critical that we don't overburden our kids so much with uh, with extra tutoring and extra training and, and extra anxiety that they don't have any time to, to develop mm-hmm. these uh, these things that they're good at. Um, so it's it's an incredibly complex process now because there's there's not great integration. And uh, you know our our own vision is that we'll we'll come to recognize as a society how fundamentally different the educational mission of dyslexic kids and kids with this kind of cognition is, and that they really need different places to be able to, to do some of those early years of education where they're just not on an inevitable uh, pathway for a, for a train wreck at the end of third grade. Oh, we can go on, but we can't go on right now. Um, <laughs> Okay, so we are we're at that time of the parent footprint moment question. So here we go. Tell us about a time that you became aware of yourself or yourselves 
as an individual, as a parent, or even an awareness of your own parents, and that new awareness had a positive impact on your own life, your child's, and or those you love? <clears throat> well, this, this is a one or both. All right, Fernet, jump. <laughs> you're, you're, you're going. All right. Throw my throat. So, yeah. so I, you know, I would say that um, it, it came a little bit of a shock, um, my expectations as a parent, when they seemed to be so different than the way I thought. I was as a child because mm-hmm. I, I felt like I internalized, uh, you know, I love my parents. I thought, I thought they, you know, they did a great job raising us rambunctious four kids. And I thought there were a lot of general principles that I could apply. And then suddenly I found that um, I couldn't really approach them like that, that they were just so totally different than I expected when it came to education, when it came to, to, you know, strengths as well as weaknesses. I, I found it was just, a very surprising experience, which I, I hadn't thought that I, I'd have to face. And, you know, whether it was things like working with math homework, where one was like a math whiz much better than me, and then another really struggled mightily, it seemed more difficulty than I had. And then I realized that I just had to approach them wherever they are and have to learn what I needed to, to, to kind of, um, you know, help them grow up to be confident and, you know, happy mm-hmm. and, and um, good learners. So uh, that kind of amazed me. And it might have been because Brock is so different from me. <laughs> that, was just, <laughs> that was just a shock, I have to say. I don't know. What was your moment? You know, I think for, for me, when um, when we were starting to work with more and more people with dyslexia, realizing that, that my father was actually very badly dyslexic. I, I don't mean badly, but in terms of the... Uh, He's goodly dyslexic in the sense that <laughs> my father did very, very well with in his in his uh, business life because he had an mm-hmm. incredible, uh, incredible sense for for uh, complex business systems and organizing business systems. Uh, but he also had these peculiarities in his academic record, uh, where he had earned straight A's in his accounting classes at university and and literally straight D's in everything else. Uh, so passing. All of <laughs> all of his, yeah, all of his, uh, I, I'm sure it was, you know, the, the Jack Horner thing where the teachers didn't want to see him again the next, uh, the yeah. next term, you know, that kept him from, from failing them. But, um, uh, and, and, uh, you know, when he'd be asked to read something out loud or something, the tre- the tremor in his voice and the halting, uh, the halting way that he read that, I, you know, it just had never really, uh, occurred to me until, until, you know, we started seeing it in our own children and then thinking back to my own um, academic experience, um, you know, getting getting really high marks on all the parts of the standardized test, except the parts that were the, the reading comprehension, the time reading, where I would never finish. And, uh, you know, remembering going down to the uh, university bookstore when I was filling out my course schedule every term and looking to see how many books there were on the shelf and picking the classes right. from the shortest stack. And, you know... <laughs> And just recognizing that uh, that while I didn't um, experience challenges nearly to the extent that my my father did, um, that these these things they they pass through families in various ways. And uh, but you know my my father has just tremendous abilities in foresight uh, and uh, in in just seeing seeing those same patterns that we were recognizing in our in our clinic families, in our own family, I think was just really, uh, 
um, mm-hmm. you know, it was a, it was a wonderful thing in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. We're, we're very proud of that. Full circle. Mm-hmm. Well, you guys, I am, uh, so grateful for your work. Um, our collaboration over the years, partnership, um, shared mission in many ways, and uh, just grateful for you both and uh, excited for this new book. Um, so please tell everyone about, about the book, where to get the book. Um, of course, the amazing newsletter, both general and premium newsletter, which is just an amazing wealth of information. Um, and also, of course, the neural learning app for people to um, get some information about their their profile. Yeah, well, thanks. And you know, we appreciate the long support that that you and the Summit Center have had to Dyslexic Advantage. I don't think that we'd we'd really be here without your support through the years. And and fantastic in terms of all the families that you've supported through the years. And we've always heard rave reviews, and and people just love to see you guys. I mean, I think it's just a really you know, in-depth and just positive experience, which is, you know, really a, a testament to all the things that you do. So. Thank Did you. you want to give the website or? Oh, dyslexicadvantage.org. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yes, that's yeah. right. Yeah. And uh, for the, the uh, testing app is available. Um, you can get information at it uh, at neurolearning.com, N-E-U-R-O learning.com. And uh, you can also find the Neural Learning Dyslexia Screening Test app in the Apple App Store or Google Play uh, Store, Kindle Fire. Uh, and there's a, there's a free mind strength screener, is it right? Still? Yes. So the, the test app itself, it, it costs money to take the, the dyslexia screening test, but there's the mind strength self-assessment for adults or for young people is available for free with a download. So if you're Wonderful. interested just in exploring the strength side, that's a free, uh, that's yeah, a free test. Yeah. Wonderful. Well, thank you all. Best of luck. And I'll look forward to our next conversation. Thanks very much. Yeah. Dan. Wonderful time. Yeah. Thanks. All right, everyone, you know what to do. Please share this with everyone you think will benefit. And there are many of you who knew who you were before you listened to this. And now there are many of you that might be questioning a little aspect of yourself or those you love by listening to this information. That is completely normal. We continue to grow and learn, and we are multifaceted and complex human beings. Thank you for your five-star reviews. Thank you for being a part of our community. Do your best to be that person you want your child to become and ask yourself that guiding question. I ask myself each day, what footprint do you want to leave? This has been a Peters and Rossi production. Parent Footprint with Dr. Dan is produced by Laura Rossi. Our engineer is Phil Rossi. Theme music is Strummerman, composed and performed by ProTunes. Artwork is by Garrett Ross. Follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Parent Footprint Podcast and on Twitter at Dr. Dan Peters. For more information, go to exactlyrightmedia.com. Follow Parent Footprint with Dr. Dan on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen so you don't miss an episode. If you like what you hear, rate and review the show.